Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, well, let's get into Matthew chapter 1. And uh, I- I'm sure um, if you're anything like me, Christmas is a strange sort of mix of anticipation and, I don't know, there's a strange twinge of uh, just a, a feeling of kind of restlessness. You know, maybe some of us, many of us that are in the military, I'm no longer in the military, but many of you are, and or maybe most of you in the military are on block leave and are gone, but, um, you know, there's a sense that you're away from home. It seems like during the holidays, it seems like there's, a, uh, there's great joy, but it seems like pain is intense. In, intensified a little bit when we think about how maybe particular relationships in our family or in our situation are out of joint. And so it seems like the highs are higher and the lows are lower. It's a, it's a sort of raw time. And so with all of that sort of swirling around in our hearts, I want us to read through the Gospel of Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus and to think about, and to center our hearts on this moment in time when God became man. And I want to give you three truths that I want us to look at to just kind of wrap our minds around before we read this. And I'm just going to refer back to these three truths as I read through the end of Matthew chapter 1 and then Matthew chapter 2. And so I'm going to give you the three overarching truths first, and then we'll read and, and comment along the way. The first overarching truth is that the incarnation of Jesus it was a war. Since the beginning of time, God has been, been since the Adam and Eve in the garden and their rebellion, God has been fighting evil since the rebellion of Lucifer and a third of the angels. Even before that, God has been fighting. There's been a war between God and, and evil and Satan. But when God broke into this world in the person of God the Son, Jesus Christ, there was an intensification of war between God and Satan. This world fiercely opposes God and his purposes. God coming in the flesh. Secondly, I I want us to see that God's word is sure and that he will fulfill his purpose. God's word is sure and he will fulfill his purpose. We'll see as we read through Matthew here in just a moment different accounts of fulfilled prophecy from the Old Testament. And, and one of the things that this is to do for us is to build our confidence in God and His character and what God says He will accomplish, no matter how dire the circumstances seem in the present. And thirdly, I want us to see, which I think is the overarching message of the Bible and certainly of Matthew chapter 1 and 2 and of the Gospels, is that, that Jesus came to save sinners. This precious baby that comes in a manger, this wrapped in swaddling clothes that we sort of over cutify. <laughs> and I just made up a word, but I think you know what I'm talking about. It is on a mission. He is God in the flesh, declaring war on Satan and his kingdom, coming to save his people, for his glory and our joy. And so let me pray, and then we'll read, starting in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Let me pray. Father, thank you for 
these folks that are here this morning and for the great privilege to gather and to think about the incarnation, the birth of Jesus Christ, the God-man, our King, our Savior, the Lord of all things. And I pray that as we read through these words from the gospel writer and apostle Matthew, that you would give us a certain sort of soberness, but yet joy, a gravity, and yet a gladness, a confidence in your word and in your purposes and in the work of Jesus, our God and King. I pray, Lord, that Christians would be encouraged and focused and recalibrated in their hearts towards Christ and His work. And I pray that my friends that are in this room that are not yet trusting in Jesus, that by your kindness you might cause them to be born again. You might give them a heart to believe and ears to hear and eyes to see Jesus so that they might turn away from themselves and turn in faith to Jesus. Lord, I pray that you do these things for the glory of your name and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. It says there, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, if you grew up in the church, I think you're probably familiar with that, that portion of Scripture, and we've all probably thought a little bit about the, the turmoil that must have been in, Jesus's, or in Joseph's heart as he, as he, as he encountered this news. But let's stop and think about how difficult this was for Joseph and for Mary. This betrothal process is, is a little bit different from how uh, a young man might um, get engaged to a young lady in our day. In, in their day, the betrothal process was a certain process where, where probably the parents of the groom would, would consult with the parents of the potential bride, and there would be a, a sort of choosing of the parents as to who, who their son will marry, and that initiated the betrothal process. And then after that, there was a preparation for marriage where they actually were together, but they didn't know each other in a physical sort of way, and then finally they were married. And so they would refer to each other as husband and wife during that time without yet actually being married and having the marriage consummated. And so during this time, Joseph is responsible for Mary, and he finds out that she's pregnant, and you know, I mean, if there's one thing he knows, it wasn't him. And yet, according to Jewish law at that time, Joseph would have been just and right to not just divorce her, but to actually, the penalty for her, her alleged sin at this time which what everybody thought was clearly what had to happen, would have been death. And yet, Joseph, can you imagine being in that spot where he, he's wrestling with this truth? And Joseph, being a just man, not wanting to put her to shame, resolved to just take care of the situation privately and divorce her quietly. In verse 20, let's keep reading. It says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, 
For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, friends, we look at this with 2,000 years of perspective, sort of having a category for who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. But can you imagine hearing this for the first time? I mean, imagine hearing that there's this Savior, God, in the flesh who's going to save his people from their sins. And by the way, he came about through a miraculous conception of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that piece of news, if you didn't even have a category for it, would be strange enough as it is. And then it's happening to you. To you, Joseph. It's happening to you, Mary. In verse 22, he goes, the writer goes on and he says, All this took place to fulfill What the Lord had spoken by the prophet, verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this is Matthew recounting a prophecy from Isaiah the prophet written hundreds of years earlier in Isaiah chapter 7 where where Isaiah prophesies to his people those very words that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. One of the things that we should learn in this is one of our three initial truths is that God's God's will will be done we can be sure of his word because we read these words in the Bible and we see the fulfilled prophecy in the life of Jesus and this should give us confidence that when God says it he will accomplish it just in the life of Jesus alone there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in his life death burial and resurrection. And right from the beginning, we see the announcement of Jesus' mission to save his people, not from Roman rule, but from their sins. Let's keep reading in verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Can you imagine the wrestling that Joseph had to go through? I mean, every now and again I have trouble sleeping. I mean, when we were going through this process with the building, I think it's just part of being a pastor. You, you wake up in the middle of the night with something or some person on your mind. Can you imagine getting woken by an angel and wrestling with this piece of knowledge that this little girl that you are now betrothed to is pregnant by the Holy Spirit and is carrying this Savior Jesus and you don't even have a category for it and you wake up and you, you, you obey. But yet, we just sort of move past that. Like Joseph just made a quick decision and he obeyed and sort of everything was fine. Then he started his little carpentry shop in Nazareth and, and he just kind of went about his life, ho-hum, like, like that was all there is to it. But friends, there's three decades of rumor and innuendo that Joseph and Mary still had to deal with. Just last week we read in Mark chapter 6 where Jesus is now a grown man coming back to his hometown. And what did they say about Jesus? They said, this is Jesus, the carpenter's son, the son of Mary. And remember how we looked at last week that for them to say that he is the son of Mary and not the son of Joseph is a sort of, Joseph is a sort of backhanded slap at Jesus's legitimacy and so for three decades a small town 500 people or so there's still the rumor mill is still churning 
about the paternity of Jesus. And so it doesn't just end with one sort of good decision by Joseph where he wakes up from a dream and decides to obey God. Obedience is a long process. Following through when you are not completely certain as to what you should do, but staying faithful to what God has called you to do is often, friends, not just a quick little pat deal where we get clarity and we move on. Joseph is wrestling with a rumor mill and doubt for three decades. But yet he obeys. In chapter 2 and verse 1 it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now this is one of those things that I think, um, I think this is kind of America and the Christian publishing uh, bookstore industry has grabbed a hold of this and just, just twisted it a little bit. Um, these wise men weren't like you know Christian J- Jewish men at the time that were you know just sort of reading the scriptures and waiting for Jesus. These these were pagan Babylonian stargazers that God reveals Himself to, shows up to these men, puts it in their hearts to look at this star and to follow him and to go after this. So it's not like these were, these were three men that were setting their hearts aside and were holy men that were waiting for Jesus. These are pagan idolaters who would have no hope otherwise, but God shows up to. These weren't wise men in the sense that they were guys with the beard and they would smoke the peace pipe at the, you know, in the teepee. These were, these were magicians. These were stargazers. And God shows up to these Babylonian star watchers and reveals himself to them and says, go, go, seek this one who will be born. Friends, this, I think this is incredibly encouraging because, because when I see the, you know, the sort of Christmas title, you know, wise men still seek him. You know, and if you've got a bumper sticker that says that, I'm sorry. But, I mean, th- that's not the point. The point is not be wise, and if you're wise, then you'll figure it out and seek Jesus. The point is, is that God reveals himself to pagan idolaters, and he shows up to them and causes them to pursue him. Friends, that's the good news of the gospel, not be wise, be smart, and if you're smart, then you'll be rewarded. It's that in our idolatry, God reveals himself for his own purposes and makes himself known even to these magi and causes them to seek Jesus. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Now, I, I think we can sort of sympathize with Herod a little bit. Uh, if you are, I mean, on every level, let's say you just have a position. Um, let's say you are the, uh, you're the quarterback for the San Diego Chargers. And somebody says, I've heard that there's been one born who's going to grow up and take your job and break all your records. That'd be a little troubling. I've heard that 
your job is about to be out. I've heard that, you know, this, this baby's going to be born and take your job. Now, granted, you don't get to be the quarterback for an NFL team for 30 years and wait for this baby to be born up. But the point is, is that, is that Herod is hearing this news that your job, that your role, that your right to be the king is going to be taken by this baby. And it was troubling to Herod. And it was troubling to, it says, all of Jerusalem. They were troubled at the announcement of these wise men that this baby would be born and he would be the king. And with kingship comes authority to rule and to reign. And so in verse 4, it says that they assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where Christ was to be, bo- was to be born. Verse 5, they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Verse 7, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So let's let's stop for a second and look at just this amazing scene. Okay, so Herod, who has been appointed the ruler of the Jewish people by the Roman emperor, is in this position of authority, he hears from these wise men that there's this child born who's going to be the king of the Jews, and that threatens him, and it also threatens these Jewish people that he has been tasked to lead and to rule. And he calls these priests and scribes of the Jewish people to himself because he knows that they're the ones that know the scriptures of their people, and he says, tell, tell me a little bit more about this. What does your literature say? And the very chiefs, priests, and scribes know the scriptures. In fact, they quote from Micah chapter 5 saying, oh yeah, well, we know about that. He's going to be born in Bethlehem and, and, and he's going to raise up and he's going to be a ruler and a shepherd for my people Israel. There's a couple things here that we need to see is that the kingship of Jesus threatens the rulers of his age and our age. It's okay for Jesus to be a sort of cultural symbol, maybe a moral helper, maybe a principle for leadership, but the world bristles at Jesus being the only way. It's one thing for Jesus to be a sort of another, another option in the plurality of moral improvements. But when Jesus is king, It threatens rulers of that age and ours, and it threatens even our own hearts. And then notice, too, that these priests and scribes knew their scriptures, but, but, I mean, they're even telling Herod from their Old Testament where he's going to be born. But yet there was some sort of disconnect. They, they, They were blind to the fulfillment that was going on before them of their own scriptures. Friends... Where was the disconnect? Where's our disconnect? Where are my blinders to how God is doing what he is doing even in my own life? These very men tasked with understanding the scriptures missed the fulfillment of all these scriptures that they knew so well. Verse 8, And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Verse 9, after listening to the king, speaking of the wise men, now they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose 
went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Okay, now, again, we need to stop here and think a little bit more deeply about what's going on here. So they've, they've seen the star. It led them to Bethlehem. I mean, I'm sorry, it led them to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, I just mixed Jerusalem and Bethlehem together. It's a new city. It led them to Jerusalem initially, and then they come to Herod, and then the star leads them from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Now, Jerusalem and Bethlehem is only about six miles away. And they're looking up at the stars. And the star is directing them just another six miles. Now think about this. Six miles is like from, I was thinking about this this week, Williams Road to Macon Road. That's, that's six miles. Exit 12 to exit 6. You know how the, every, every, like the miles on the interstate, the exits are mile markers? And by the way, is anybody still messed up by that when they changed that about 15 years ago? Do you still think of all the exits by their old numbers? Anyway, maybe you kind of know how long somebody's been living in Columbus by whether or not they think that airport through, throughway is excellent. What did it used to be? Four or whatever? Anyway, five, oh, see, we got, we got an old Columbus person there. So, so anyway, so it's exit 6 to exit 12. From Williams Road to Macon Road is six miles. Now think of a star up in the heaven, and then think of the desert sky, and how many stars are up there. I mean, it's not like you just, oh, well, that happens to be the Milky Way, and there's Orion's belt. And I, It's not like stars here in the south where there's trees and cities and lights. When you go to the, see the stars in the desert where there are no city lights, it is unbelievable how many stars there are. I grew up in a little desert town, inland of San Diego, and the first time that Jennifer um, went to meet my parents, when, when we had just gotten engaged, we, 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 you fly into San Diego, and then you drive down into the valley for about an hour and a half into the middle of nowhere, and that, then when you find where nowhere empties into nothing, that's my hometown. Right? But before you get from San Diego to my hometown, you go through this little valley and there's no lights. The mountain sort of blocks the lights of, of the big city, San Diego, and, and there's just nothing from, from San Diego to Arizona. There's just inland desert, small little towns that don't have big lights. And in the, in the dark desert night, you can look up and you can see stars and friends. It is breathtaking how many stars you can see on a black desert night with no city lights to obscure it. And, and that's the type of desert night that surely these wise men were looking at. I mean, there are clusters. There, there's parts of the sky where there's more stars than there are black sky. And, and then you're at Williams Road and you're looking thousands of miles into the sky where there's these, there's, there's just a, a, a swath, there's a there's a huge amount of stars, and there's one star that is so brilliant and so bright that it's going to lead you not in a direction like from here to go, you know, a thousand miles that way, but it's going to come down and be so specific to you that it's going to lead you just another six miles. Friends, do you realize how, how like specific that is? 
Like amidst all the other stars, God is causing one star to sort of come down or be known to these wise men in such a way to just go another six miles. Friends, that's miraculous. God is sovereign over the stars. He's sovereign over every aspect of this universe. He can cause one star to sort of come on down, like hang down on a string, tap these cats on the shoulder, and say six more miles that way. Friends, when I read stuff like that, I'm just blown away at the sovereign power of God that he will accomplish his purpose. He writes something in the Old Testament that says that my son will be born in Bethlehem and he drops by a string one star to lead these pagan idolaters another six miles. Friends, God can and will and does accomplish his purpose in all things. And when we read just some little obscure few verses like that, it should give us great encouragement that nothing, nothing can hold back his hand when he desires to show himself to people. Verse 11 continues, and it says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures... They offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Remember that the incarnation of God in the flesh is a war. And Herod is about to destroy. He wants to destroy this Christ child, and he's about to destroy many other children in his mission to destroy Jesus. Verse 14 says about Joseph that he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And this particular prophet is Hosea in the Old Testament. Out of Egypt I called my son. So why is this significant? Why is it significant that Jesus is is identifying with this Old Testament prophecy in Hosea. And what is Hosea speaking about when he says, out of Egypt I called my son? Well, in the Old Testament, Israel is, is portrayed as God's son. And God, one of the climaxes of the Old Testament is God rescuing his people out of Egyptian captivity through the hands of Moses, the deliverer. Through no act of their own, through no merit of their own, God rescues them. And so here, Jesus, even in his infancy, going to Egypt, and then God using his escape into Egypt and then bringing him back, rescuing him from Herod, is Jesus identifying himself with his people Israel who were saved by God from Egypt. And just as God saves his people in the Old Testament from Egypt, Jesus is coming to save his people from their sins, and he does that by identifying with them as God's son. Verse 16, it says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, 
became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. This was then, that then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And so Jeremiah is speaking about this exile of God's people by the Babylonians thousands of years before and how they slaughtered these Jewish babies and how then this is fulfilled again with Herod killing these children because evil is at war with God who has become man. And friends, can you imagine this scene where all of these children in Bethlehem, two years old and under all of these male children, are slaughtered? Herod, evil, Satan, is at war with the God who has become man. Verse 19, it says, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Now, I find that incredibly encouraging. Joseph has been told by God in a dream to, okay, get up and go back. And as he goes back, he hears that the guy's son, who he was afraid of, is there. And so he's scared, even after God told him in a dream to go. And instead of showing back up and slapping him around and saying, what's the matter, Joseph? I told you you could go. God, in his kindness and mercy, speaks to him gently again, and he says, Go now to this other place. Withdraw to the district of Galilee. In verse 23, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Again, the Old Testament prophecy about Jesus coming true in his life. And let's summarize again these three points, and then we'll, we'll respond together in worship. The first is that the incarnation was a war. It is a war. God become flesh is fiercely opposed. Friends, why is God becoming flesh such an issue for Satan? It's because he knows that he has dominion over our fallen flesh. He knows that he reigns over the kingdom of this world because of our rebellion. And he knows that the only thing that can redeem fallen flesh is is perfect flesh, is a perfect life. The only thing that can redeem human sin is human righteousness. And so the enemy hates God come in the form of Jesus, and he just likewise, he hates God come into the person, our lives, in our hearts, in our minds. Jesus coming into this world is fiercely opposed by Satan. 
And, and when we walk around as if um, this life is just kind of about getting by and, and doing a little bit better, friends, we, we miss the reality of Christmas and the work of Jesus. Secondly is God's word is sure and he will fulfill his purpose. Look at how God, I mean, just in this chapter and a half in Matthew, we see three or four times God fulfilling his word in the birth of Jesus. What effect should this have on us? Friends, this should embolden us with confidence in God and his promises. I mean, it's almost, as I read this, and I remember thinking this during that message back in October when we were looking at before the presidential election, and we looked at God's sovereignty over the Old Testament leaders and rulers, and we looked at how God would call these leaders to, even pagan leaders, to fulfill his purpose. And when we, when we read these accounts of the Old Testament prophecies of Jesus coming true, there's almost this sense that God has this thing rigged. And, and friends, it, he does. Like, like that's... Like, that, that's one of the points of the Bible is that God is sovereign. God is not reacting to evil. The, the future is not undetermined for God. God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are not up in heaven wringing their hands saying, I wonder who's going to be president or I wonder what's going to happen in the Middle East or I wonder what decision that person is going to make or I wonder if, if the Congress is going to not, is going to solve the fiscal cliff or, or I wonder if there's going to be this or that God is utterly sovereign, friends. And one of the most important and fundamental truths for a Christian, a child of God, to wrap their minds around and give their heart to is that God's word is sure and he will fulfill his purpose. And we see in this account of Matthew these Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And one of the purposes of Matthew recounting these things is to embolden God's people to know that when God says it, he will do it. And that's what Paul writes to this young pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy 1. He says, I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. Friends, does that mean that we can be a sort of, like maybe some Christians who, who, who I think um, over-personalize this grand truth and, and they think that anything that they sort of confess that they can sort of claim as theirs? No, friends. Although we love our brothers and sisters who might be caught up in that uh, very dangerous movement, we realize that's not what is meant by this truth. Not that we can sort of make our mind up about what, what applies to us and that we get to sort of name and claim certain aspects or benefits for this life. But it's so much grander and so much glorious than that. It's that whether, whether or not things go well for me here on this earth, that God's word is sure and his purpose is grand and nothing can snatch me from his hand. No troubled situation, no disease, no sin, no discouraging event, no rebellious loved one, no thing, friend, can thwart God's purposes, not just for the universe and the global redemption of mankind in Christ, but even for our lives. Because one of the things that this is meant to encourage us with is that God is for us, so who can be against us? Whatever happens to us, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded 
that he is able to keep that which he has committed to me until that day. And we learn that, friends, in part by looking at this account where God promises that the Savior will come and he comes. This should embolden us. Because God's word is sure and he will fulfill his purpose. And then thirdly and finally, the third truth that I think we need to wrap our minds around and give our hearts to is that Jesus came to save sinners. The angel announces it to Joseph in Matthew 1 when he tells him what to name Jesus and Verse 21, he says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will, he will save his people from their sins. He will live this life in the flesh that none of us can live. Like where we try and we fail and where we make New Year's resolutions and we we peter out in mid-February and where we argue with our loved ones and we promise never to do it again and we continue to fail. Where we fail, there's coming one who will perfectly succeed. And he, and, and he won't sort of hoard that perfection to us as an example that's unattainable. And he won't say, see, I did it. Now you have to do it too. He will, he will then take his perfection and he will lay it down on a cross. So God, fully God, becomes fully man. The, the greatest mystery and most beautiful truth in the universe. God becomes man, humbles himself and, and puts in a sort of reserve his godness and takes on all of humanity. And as Hebrew says, he became like us in every way. And he's tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. And he, he lays down that perfection on a cross. Because see, we offended a holy and righteous God. And God is just and right to condemn us forever and to require of us our lives. And on the cross... Jesus lays down his perfect life that's fully God and fully man and absorbs God's justice and wrath and punishment for all those who will ever turn away from themselves and trust in him. Jesus comes to save sinners and here's what happens in this baby that becomes a perfect man who lays down his life on the cross. He's perfect and he lays down his perfection on the cross and because he's perfect, his sacrifice is satisfactory and it appeases God's justice and it's able to forgive sins and then he rises again over death and sin and all of its consequences he rises again in victory over the evil that sought to kill him and over the evil that tugs still at our souls and over the flesh that he conquered. And he rises in victory over those things, evil, sin, Satan, death, and all of its consequences, not just forgiving sin, but now giving victorious life to his people. 
And he gives us his righteousness for all those that would turn away from trusting in their own righteousness and believe and look to him. He gives not just forgiveness of sin, but he gives new life and righteousness. Jesus came to save sinners, friends. The wonder of Christmas is not that God can show up to pagan idolaters from Babylon or not that he can cause one star to drop and to shine and to lead them six miles more down the road. It's not just that God does all of these miraculous things. It's not even just that he can cause a virgin to become pregnant. It's that God became flesh and laid down his life and now gives life to all who will turn and trust Jesus came to save sinners, friends. And one of the most important things that we were, in fact, the thing that we were created for is to gaze into that truth and wonder and worship with awe and joy. So is, is that where your gaze is today? I end with these words from Charles Wesley, the great Methodist hymn writer. He and his brother, John Wesley, wonderful pioneers of of the kingdom of God here in America. They were from Great Britain and came and did wonderful work here in Georgia and all up and down the eastern seaboard in the 1700s in the first great awakening along with George Whitfield and others. Charles Wesley in particular was a, a hymn writer. Many of the hymns that we sing, he, he wrote. And this is one of my favorite Wesley hymns, And Can It Be? Listen to a few of these words. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus, and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown. Through Christ my own, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Jesus came to save sinners. Friends, do you see the glory of that? Jesus didn't come to affirm and approve religious people. Jesus came to save train wrecks like you and me. Jesus came to save Young husbands who can't fight the lust in their hearts. Jesus came to save young women who are racked with insecurity over their appearance. Jesus came to save people who just can't <coughs> stop that addiction. Jesus came to save people who grow up in the church and have a sort of hard, cold-hearted bitterness and self-righteousness about them. Jesus came to save pagan idolaters on the other side of the world who are God-haters. Jesus 
came to save bruised reeds who, who grew up in broken homes, who were sinned against in horrible ways. Jesus came to save broken hearts that, that can't imagine hope on the horizon. Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to save people who can't save themselves. Jesus came to save people who weren't wise but who were trapped in folly. Jesus came to save blind people. Jesus came to save broken people. Jesus came to save sinners. Friends, that is, that is, that is glorious news. If you're one of those that he saved, in just a moment, would you just join me in worshiping him? And if you're, if you're finding yourself maybe realizing that you're, you're not one that he has saved yet, do you realize that the glorious news of that friend is not to do anything but to simply look to Jesus? To look to Jesus. I mean, it's so glorious. It's a scandal to look to Jesus. Do that even now. Jesus came to save people just like you who can't do anything but look away from themselves and look to him. Do that even now. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we come now to respond to Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus, Lord, would we push through the malaise of cultural uh, just silliness that oftentimes we build around our lives and around your birth, and would we, would we zero our hearts into this one great and glorious truth that Jesus came to save sinners, God? How wonderful is that? How can that be? Father, would you, would you cause Christians in this room to recalibrate their hearts to the glory of the incarnation of Jesus that makes salvation possible? Would you sober us up, God? Would you put spiritual smelling salts underneath our nose so that we understand that, that the incarnation is war? And would you press us into a deeper reality of who Jesus is and what he has done, that he didn't save us from stubbing our toe, but he saved us from separation from you forever. And Father, for my friends in this room who, who, who just have never heard this message, or, or maybe they've heard it, but it's, never, it's just never awakened their soul, God, would you, would you cause them to see Jesus today, right now, truly see Jesus for who he is, God, King, in the flesh, Savior. God, would they see Jesus? And Lord, would you give them a new heart so that they can believe, and eyes so that they can see, and ears to hear, and a heart to believe that Jesus saves sinners. Jesus saves sinners. And he gives them faith so that they can turn from themselves and turn and trust to him. Jesus, would you do these things? Father, would you do this for your glory and our joy? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.